0: Morning everyone. Let me put on my eyes here. Uh, We're in the fifth week of our series, The Gospel Story, where we've been taking a journey through the Bible in an attempt to show that show you that it's not just a book of a bunch of random independent stories with some good moral lessons to apply to life. But that from Genesis through Revelation, there is one overarching theme. There is one unbreakable scarlet ribbon that runs from beginning to end. One plan of God that's revealed. One person that the story is about. One hero who has come to save the day. My sons over the past dozen years or so have pointed me to some shows they've been watching in order to see what I think, to see if I could get into the show along with them. Shows that have been some of the most compelling, the most watched shows of our day. Shows like Dexter... Sons of Anarchy, The Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, Yellowstone, Peaky Blinders. You know what i found consistently in each of these shows is that there's no real protagonist, there's no true hero. Inevitably, if there's a good guy, they eventually go bad. The story is often enveloped in darkness, and you find yourself rooting for the lesser of two evils. The best shows never used to be this way. I have to think that maybe it's a reflection of our world where people have lost sight of God, lost sight of a moral right and wrong, who feel tainted and pessimistic and disillusioned by the evil, the moral compromise, the endless conflicts and fighting, the pain people inflict on one another, and the sense of hopelessness that increasingly envelops our world. People get sucked into the depiction of others' misery, much like the daytime soap operas of old, because even though their own lives fall short of living the dream They kind of find a little solace in knowing that at least they're not as messed up as those sad sack characters they're watching on the screen. Sadly, these shows just may be a closer reflection of today's reality. Maybe for too many people, they've given up on happily ever after and any hope of a hero entering the scene to save the day. In our story, the gospel story, there is one true protagonist, one genuine hero who never loses his way, who never morally compromises who never goes bad, in fact, he never sins, whose love is genuine, so pure, so intense, so unwavering in the midst of evil, that he puts his own life on the line with no intrinsic motive except to save others. He is the answer to what is wrong in our world, he is the remedy to what ails the human heart, He's the one who alone can redeem and restore. The hero of the gospel story's name is Jesus. If you've been with us through these last four Sundays, you'll remember that we've broken the gospel story into themes that reveal the how, the what, and the whys of our world. The best explanation for why things are the way they are today. Our story is a story of reality, and we began with creation, where it explains how things began, and it was in sinless perfection. Then we moved to the fall, how things got all messed up, and why our world is the way it is today. Today. Then we move to the promise where God reveals his plan on how he intends to fix it, how to make things right again. And then last Sunday, we looked at the law, which was given to Moses, which revealed God's holiness, his standard of perfection, has exposed our sin, how far short we fall from God's standard, and how impossible it is to save ourselves. A man will never find or create a solution to what ails the human race. Today, week five, enters our hero, Jesus Christ. And before we jump into our main text, I want to share with you a few quotes from several well-known historical figures and their thoughts about Jesus. The first one, though, you probably have not heard of, and his name is Charles Templeton. Many years ago, it was said of him, an evangelist and a preacher at the time for an organization called Youth for Christ, that he was the most gifted and talented young preacher in America. At times, he preached to four stadiums that maybe had as many as 30,000 people, and yet you've never heard of him. But you've heard of his associate and friend, a man named Billy Graham, the world's most popular evangelist, who preached the gospel to more people than any single human being in history. Charles Templeton did not. Five years after they made their pronouncement about him, he walked away from his faith in Christ, saying that he didn't believe anymore. Fifty years later, a man named Lee Strobel, writing a book he would title The Case for Faith, decided to track down Charles Templeton in hopes of interviewing him. And he met Mr. Templeton in his home. He was now in his 80s. His health was starting to fail, but his mind was sharp. And Lee Strobel asked him, What do you think of Jesus Christ now? And this is how Charles Templeton answered. He was the greatest human being who ever lived. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus Christ. Then Templeton's voice started to crack. Tears welled up in his eyes, and he uttered these words, I miss him. Fifty years prior to this moment, a young promising evangelist and preacher said, I want nothing to do with Jesus anymore. Is now saying that I miss him. After saying those words, he covered his face with his hands and he wept like a baby. Sadly, Charles Templeton, now an avowed atheist, died a few years after the interview at the age of 86, after writing the book, Farewell to God. What was obvious to Lee Strobel concerning this man was that Jesus Christ still had a profound impact on his life, that because Jesus is the most compelling and captivating personality in all of history. Listen to what several famous unbelievers and believers say about Jesus. Albert Einstein said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. H.G. Wells, a famous British author, said, I am a historian, I am not a believer, But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And then Napoleon Bonaparte said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible comparison. The truth of the matter is, what you think about and what you decide to do with Jesus is and will be forever the most important decision that you make in your life. Before we get into our text, let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for meeting us here today. And Lord, I know that whether there's 80 people here or 100, Lord, that each person has walked in with their own things that they carry, Lord. Their stresses, their pressures in life, their disappointments, their pain. The challenges, Lord, the the shame, the guilt, um, and whatever it is that people are going through this morning, Lord, I pray that you would help them to lay all of that at the foot of your throne. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to open our minds and our hearts to what it is that you want to say to us through your word this morning. Help us to more fully understand, Jesus, who you truly are, what you've done for us on the cross, and what that all means for our lives. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to our main text this morning, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 5. And if you don't have a Bible, you'll see some uh, underneath the chairs in front of you, and just go ahead and grab one of those and turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And Paul writes here, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the per- first part of this text, what we're looking at, is actually called the humiliation of Christ, while the latter three verses, the second part, speaks of the exaltation of Christ. Many scholars believe that this section of Scripture that we just read was actually a poem or a hymn that Paul placed in his letter for the purpose of using it as an example of humility for the Philippian church to follow. Not the actions of Christ, but the attitude of Christ. It's sandwiched between Paul's exhortation for the Christians in the church there to be humble, to put away selfish ambition, to consider others as more important than themselves, to look out for the interest of others, to put away grumbling and complaining, to sacrifice and die to self for the good of others, to work hard for unity, and all this being for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. These are the qualities that none of us naturally have and are, are possible only through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And he starts here, he bridges the text before with this verse 5, and he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. He's exhorting the church to have the attitude of Christ, to look to him as your example on how you are to live in humility and deference with one another. And he moves on in verse 6 and he says, Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. And that word form jumps out. In the NIV it says, in his very nature he was God. And that word form in the Greek is the word morphe. It speaks to the essential nature of something that does not change. Another Greek word for the word form is also schema, which means it speaks of an outward form that does change. So as a human being, our morphe, the essence of who we are as humans, never changes because we will always be human. But our schema does change. In, in the womb, as, as a child in the womb, we start out as a zygote, and then we move to an embryo, and to a fetus, and a newborn, then a toddler, then a young boy, and an adolescence, then a young man, then an older man. Changes to our outward form, our schema, continues as we age. Just a couple of days ago, I was looking through several boxes of family photos that I hadn't looked at in a long time. It was, it was so much fun. So many wonderful memories. And seeing just how much Lisa and myself and the boys have changed. And, you know, you kind of look at yourself and you say, Wow, I actually at one time looked that young and was that skinny. <laughs> Other than that, if you haven't done that for a while, I encourage you to do that. Pull out those old pictures and remember the things you know throughout your life and, and the kids when they were little. What Paul is saying here about Jesus is that he possesses an unchangeable morphe. Essential nature of Jesus is God. Hebrews 13 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was God, He is God, He will always be God in His essential nature. And then Romans 9, 5 says, there are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all forever praised. Amen. This verse ties directly to the story that we've been telling over the last several weeks that there was a promise of a Messiah given to Abraham that would come through his ancestry, a human Messiah revealed as Jesus Christ who is God over all. That verse tells us that he is fully God and that he is fully man. In our text, Paul goes on he says, who did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. And that word exploited refers to using something for personal gain or ambition. The International Version says, as something to be grasped, to seize and hold tightly to, to forcibly retain or grab hold of. And the Gospel story gives us a stark contrast between two of its main characters, Jesus and Lucifer. If you remember thus far in our story, the devil was revealed in the garden through a serpent or a snake who tempted Adam and Eve to sin and disobey God. And Lucifer is revealed in the scriptures as the story goes, he was a glorious angelic being in heaven, the worship leader before the throne of God, an anointed cherub, the highest of angels. He was bestowed with extraordinary glory, beauty, and wisdom, but that wasn't enough to satisfy him. Isaiah 14 says he proclaims, I will be like the Most High God. What he wanted was to be equal with God. So he tries to seize it. He tries to grab hold of the throne. Bad idea. God rebelled. repelled his rebellion, cast him out of heaven along with a third of the angels that rebelled with him, becoming the devil and his demons, the archenemies of God and his people. But let's contrast what Lucifer attempted to do was grab and seize hold of God's throne with Jesus. In his incarnation, in his becoming man, in living life on earth, he humbly chose not to hold tightly to all that was his in heaven. He put all of that aside to go on a mission, a rescue mission, to save us from our sin. He was willing to let go of all his heavenly privileges, his preferences, and his rights for the betterment of others for the good of you and I. Once again, Paul is telling us that this is to be an example we are to follow as we love one another in Christian community. We're to die to ourselves, die to our rights and our privileges and our preferences for the betterment of others, for the good of the community. Let's move on in in verse 7 in Philippians Speaking of Jesus, Paul says instead, instead of grasping tightly to his rights and privileges and glory in heaven, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. So what did Jesus empty himself of? Not his deity. He didn't because he couldn't. Divinity was his essence. It was his nature. It was who he was and always would be. Just like as humans, we can never stop being a human. We can't change that essential nature of ourselves. Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly honor, his riches and treasures and divine glory to come to this earth in human flesh. In anticipation of the completion of his rescue mission, the finished work of the cross, the father's raising him from the dead, Jesus says this in John seventeen four and 5. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. <clears throat> and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Right there Jesus is claiming he had glory with the Father before the world was even created. Once again, he's tying the gospel story together for us and how it all points to him. And then in John 6:56 to 59, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. They said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Right here, Jesus is telling the Jews of his day that Abraham rejoiced in the promise that was given that a Messiah would come through his family line. The Jews retort, how can you know anything about Abraham and what he thought he lived many years before you? And then Jesus uses the name for God that was revealed to Moses before a burning bush when he asked, who I should tell Pharaoh has sent me? And God responded to him, I am has sent you. The name that God wanted to be identified as, Yahweh, the the eternal, all-powerful, sovereign God. And the Jews knew that this name that Jesus was using when he said, I am, they knew that he was claiming to be God. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him, because in their law, when a mere man was claiming that they were God, he was to be stoned to death. The Jews knew exactly what Jesus was claiming to be, and, and how people can say that there's nowhere in the scriptures that Jesus claimed to be God I don't get it because over and over he's clearly claiming, "I am God. I and the Father are one." Before Abraham, I will, I am. And isn't it cool when you begin to see how the entire Bible ties together in one story? When we speak of Jesus emptying Himself, we also see He gave up His independent exercise of His will. In John 6:38, he says, "For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me." And if you remember, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his darkest hour, in anticipation of his crucifixion, just a short time before he would betrayed, be betrayed by Judas and arrested, he prays these words to God the Father in Matthew 26:39: "Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but Your will be done." Jesus in human flesh as a man was fully submissive to the Father's will. He lived for the Father's will. He said, My will is to do his will. And once again, if we take this as some kind of application, as Jesus' attitude as an example, this is how we are to live. God, not my will, but your will be done. This is how we are to live before Christ in community with one another. And then Paul says he did this by assuming the form of a servant. A noble person will give up his rights and privileges to help those in need, to help those survive who cannot help themselves. Jesus, the glorious heavenly king, took off his crown and robes, leaving the palace, and put on rags to blend in with the peasants and the slums and the gutters of life to save them from a lost and desperate situation. And that word servant in the Greek, some believe that the word doulos here is actually better rendered slave. That Jesus accepted a slave's place, one who is totally subservient to the will of another. You see, he didn't come as king of heaven to be king on earth. That's going to come later. Later. As the gospel story will reveal in our final two Sundays, his first coming was as suffering servant Messiah to pay for the sins of the world. In Matthew twenty twenty-eight, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here is the glorious, eternal God, the creator of all things, who decides to come on a rescue mission to save us from our sin. He is already the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he comes and says, hey, listen, I didn't come for all you guys to serve me. I came to serve you and to give my life as a ransom for many. What kind of king does that? Once again, Jesus is our example. How often do we want the church to serve our needs and wants and desires rather and us serving him in the mission of the church. How often do we expect our spouse or our kids or our friends to serve us as we rarely break a sweat for them? If that describes you, I hope you're convicted and do something to change it, to find ways to lay your life down in service of others. That is Christ's example. That is part of the meaning of Christianity. We're not here to consume. We're not here to take in. The church isn't here just to meet your needs and take care of you. You are here to be part of the mission of Jesus Christ that he's given us and to serve one another within that. Let's go on and read in verse 8. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus literally became a human being. He wasn't half man and half God. He wasn't God masquerading as a human for a while. Jesus was and is forever 100% God and 100% human. And this is the mystery of the Incarnation. This is where the morphe and the schema comes in. Morphe, in his very essence, Jesus was God. In his schema, in his external form, he was man. His form and schema changed as he grew. From an infant to a boy to a man. He looked like a man. He talked like a man. He walked like a man. He hungered and thirsted like a man. He cried like a man, and he bled like a man. But there was one big difference. He was sinless. And this is why this man was the only man who could pay for the sins of others. St. Augustine says this: The maker of man became man that he, the ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he the bread might be hungry, that he the fountain might be thirsty, that he the light might sleep in darkness. That he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses. That he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a corrupt mortal judge. That he himself, justice, might be contemned by the unjust. That he, discipline itself, might be scourged with a whip. That he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross. That he, courage and strength personified, might be weakened. And that he, very life itself, might die. When Jesus died on a cross, he died physically. When he rose from the grave, he rose physically in a glorified body. When he ascended to heaven physically, he sits now at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven physically, and he will return one day physically. And when you meet him face to face, you will see that he still bears the scars from the wounds inflicted upon him on the cross. This is really impossible in your mind to believe What anyone else would tell you is a crazy story. Unless you believe in a God who is eternal, who's sovereign, who's all-powerful and all-wise, who created all things and performs miracles, and because of that, he can choose to accomplish his plan of redemption however he sees fit. For then, when you really get it, when you fully understand the story you also see him as a God who is love, who's forgiving, who is full of grace and mercy, who is the God of second chances, who absolutely adores and cherishes you and will go to any length, any means possible to save you from your sin and win you back to himself. A God who stooped down, way down, to make you great. Oh, what a wonderful Savior Jesus is. What we're going to see in the final verses of this text is God the Father's response to Christ's humility. We're going to focus on the exaltation of Christ, so let's read verses 9 through 11. For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he starts out these three verses on the exaltation of Christ and he says for this reason he says therefore because of all that was accomplished in his humiliation this is how God the Father responded to him. He declares the following. And as we see humiliation was followed by exaltation. This is why the cross was so shocking to the Jews of Jesus' day, for they were looking for a king of glory, a king of exaltation, not a king of service and humiliation. It's what they missed that their scriptures declared, that the Messiah would first come as the Lamb of God, the suffering servant Messiah who would take away or pay for the sins of the world. But his second coming would be as the Lion of Judah, who will come as the conquering King Messiah to defeat and judge his enemies, to abolish sin, evil death, and the curse of the fall and we store all things to his original intentions of sinless perfection and glory. Jesus' stages of glorification were first his resurrection from the dead where his disciples proclaimed that the tomb was empty. Come and see. Then it was his ascension to heaven where his disciples looked up in bodily form and Jesus ascends to heaven beyond the clouds. And then It was his dominion as Lord at the right hand of the throne in heaven, as the Father has bestowed on him all authority and power. The wrath of God has been appeased for all who believe. The work of redemption is now complete. It is finished, mission accomplished, promise fulfilled. Jesus' glory has been restored. Heaven's worship before him has been restored. All of his rights, his privileges, all his heaven's riches and treasures have been restored. His intimate fellowship with the Father restored, the full expression of his attributes restored, the full use of his independent will within the Trinity restored. Jesus is now in his rightful place at the right hand of the Father's throne in heaven, a place of authority and power for the one who alone has earned it, the one alone who deserves it. The Father in heaven has chosen to give him that place of honor and authority and the name that is above every other name. There's some debate here, and as I've studied this, I don't believe that the name that is spoken of here is Jesus. For that name was a common name that was given to many people of his day. The name the Father has bestowed on him is that of Lord. It's a reference to the office or rank conferred on Jesus by the Father, his glorious position where he now holds all authority and power in heaven and earth. Ephesians 1, 20, 21 says, God the Father exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus Christ has been declared by God the Father that he is Lord of all. And then Paul says that every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of the Father. Paul's not indicating here that all will in the end be saved. Not at all. He's saying that God's design is that all people everywhere should worship and serve Jesus as Lord. And they will show their recognition of his lordship by a bended knee and through words declaring him as Lord... Whether they do so from a heart of worship or do so from a heart of bitterness and regret. He says, everyone in heaven, all believers and heavenly beings at home with the Lord will declare he is Lord. On earth, all who remain alive at his departing and in the future will declare that he is Lord. Under the earth, all who have rejected him, those who refused him in this life, will get what they deserve for all eternity in hell. To not have God in their lives. And as a result to forever be denied any access to his love and goodness. To live forever separated from him. They now know Jesus is Lord and acknowledge it through bitterness and hardness of heart. But they will still declare Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of this both Jesus' humiliation and exaltation has all been for the glory of God the Father. And once again, we can pull an example of how we are to take on the attitude of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, so whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Place that verse up against your life. And with God's help, rid your life of everything that robs him of the glory. Finally, I thought of the Apostle John, Jesus' closest friend on earth, and how he received a vision of heaven. For he saw Jesus in a completely different way than the Jesus he saw on earth. Listen to the words he uses to describe the glory of Jesus in heaven. Revelation 1, 13-18, he says, I saw the son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Jesus here is seen in full glory, splendor, and power, and yet his first words to John were, Do not be afraid. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. How comforting it is for me to know that in his heavenly perfection, in all his glory, in his power, in his holiness, that he still is our gentle and lowly friend. I mean, wow. And doesn't that just give you goosebumps to realize who he really is and all his exalted glory, but yet his hand is on John and says, Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of me. I'm gentle and lowly and humble of heart. Chris, you can come on up. So the question I have to close this morning is why? Why would God choose to do this? Why would he do this incredible thing for people like us, like you and me, who reject him, at times ignore and neglect him, who sin and rebel against him and and live as if we don't need him? Why would he do this when we have so many other loves and devotions that we always place before him? Why? Why would he do this? <clears throat> well, I found a hymn by Frederick Lehman, and I think the words of his last stanza kind of say it all. And the hymn's titled, The Love of God. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies a parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry or could the scroll contain the whole though stretch from sky to sky. The love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless. To close, I want to read Ephesians 3, 17-19. And this is my prayer for you that Paul shares with the Christians in Ephesus. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Why did he do it? It's his infinite love for you and I that led him to do this. Jesus is the hero of the gospel story. Choose to make Jesus the hero of your life. We're going to spend some time in reflection. And what I want you to ask you to do is just spend some quiet time with with God right now, just you and him. And the question I, I want you to ask him is, Jesus, where do I really stand with you? Have I really put my faith and trust in you as my Savior? Have I really surrendered my life to you as Lord? And Jesus, how may I be robbing you of your glory? Through my pride or through my selfishness, through my independent spirit or my grumbling and complaining, through my expectation to be served and not wanting to have to serve others, do the idols I have that rank so much higher than you. Do the sin I cling to. Tell me the ways that I don't glorify you. Show me where I really stand in my heart with you. He died for it all. So take this time and confess to him. And turn from your sin and turn to him. And leave here surrendering all to him as Lord believing no longer that you were powerless over your sin, but instead believing you are a changed person by the grace of God. the God who came in human flesh to set you free. Always remember he is a God who loves you just the way you are and loves you too much to let you stay that way. Go ahead and spend that time with Jesus right now.